Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event originally occurred at the AWP conference in Washington, D.C. on February 4th, 2011. The recording features Lorraine Lopez, Sandra Cisneros, and John Philip Santos. You will now hear Lorraine Lopez provide introductions. Today it's my honor and privilege to introduce today's speakers, Sandra Cisneros and John Philip Santos. Originally, Elena Maria Veramontes was going to have the conversation with Sandra. Unfortunately, health problems arose for Elena and she was not able to make it. So we're very grateful and we're very privileged that John Philip Santos stepped into the, um, to the breach and he's really wonderfully generous to do this and I hope that you all appreciate that as much as I do. Um, I want to say a little bit about Macondo before I introduce today's conversationalists. Um, Macondo Foundation works with dedicated and compassionate writers who view their work and talents as part of a larger task of community building and nonviolent social change. Macondo is a community of poets, novelists, journalists, performance artists, and creative writers of all genres whose work is socially engaged. What unites us is a commitment to serve our underserved communities through our writing. And that's the official word on Macondo unofficially. This is the most remarkable organization I have ever been honored to be a part of. It really feels like a homeland. Macondo feels like a homeland to me, a place that nurtures my creative spirit and a place where I can extend nurturance to other writers. Um, it's just a remarkable organization. I, I, I think you have to experience it in the way that so many of us have in order to appreciate it fully. Macondo enjoys the ongoing support and participation of many internationally recognized writers, including Denise Chavez, John Philip Santos, Luis Rodriguez, Dorothy Allison, Joy Harjo, Carmen Tafoya, and a large body of emerging writers, and I recognize many of you here today, I'm so proud to see you here, um, who are publishing books, touring in the U.S. and abroad, and working in their communities. Um, officially incorporated in 2006, the Macondo Foundation has roots in the Macondo Writing Workshop named after the sleepy town in Gabriel Garcia Marquez, 100 Years of Solitude, which began in 1995 in the kitchen of poet and writer Sandra Cisneros. The workshop grew rapidly from 15 to more than 120 participants in less than nine years. During that time, the Macondo Workshop expanded its community involvement through annual events with Our Lady of the Lake University, UT San Antonio, Trinity University, Esperanza Peace and Justice Center, Jumpstart Performance Theater, Casa de Maria y Marta, and the Bexar County Juvenile Detention Center. Macondo currently makes its home at Our Lady of the Lake University. And now this is a new affiliation of Macondo workshops with the associated writing programs that we're very proud of. And we're very happy that Francisco Aragon, who spoke before me, was able to facilitate this new relationship, which is going to be important for both parties. I know it. OK, I want to introduce today's um, conversationalists. I don't want to say presenters, because this is a conversation. Like most people, I first encountered Sandra Cisneros on the page. I remember coming across her short story, Woman Hollering Creek, in the Los Angeles Times Magazine in my parents' house many, many years ago. And I will never forget the scalp-tightening feeling of recognition I experienced in reading that narrative. As I devoured the story, I felt as if I had been set on fire, not in the self-immolating sense, but in the incandescent sense. 
of being ablaze with excitement and energy. Finally, I found someone writing for me and to me, someone writing about what concerned me, someone inscribing a life with which I identified. The moment was a turning point for me. It was if Sandra had appeared in that small bedroom of my parents' house where I read to give me a heart shake, to wake me up to my life as a woman and as a writer, and to draw me away from the margins and fully onto the page, ultimately enabling me from change to change from object to subject in the long and very convoluted sentence that has been my life. That such a story was made, uh, was possible, that such a story was possible made tangible for me my dream of being a writer. And it was the first time Sandra Cisneros changed my life and that would have been enough, more than I could have any right to hope for. But as it is in fables and folk tales, three is the magic number. And years later, this happened two more times. Sandra appeared in my life and altered it in a profound and permanent way when she selected my stories to win the Miguel Marmol Prize in fiction, which resulted in publication of my first book. <coughs> then again, when I became a member of Macondo Writing Workshop and met Sandra in San Antonio nearly five years ago, Words cannot convey the impact such intercessions by this radiant woman have had on my life, personally, professionally, even spiritually, to the extent that though we are but a few years apart in age, I consider Sandra Cisneros my spiritual mother, and I strive never to commit any acts that may, might make Sandra wish she had practiced spiritual birth control. <laughs> it's true. Many, many people have had their lives changed, enhanced, liberated, enriched, and expanded by encountering and experiencing in one way or another, on the page or in the flesh, this amazing writer and activist who I'm honored to introduce to you today. You must know of Sandra's accomplishments and publications. If you do not, shame on you. <laughs> shame on you. But. Um, and I'm just so honored to introduce her today, and I don't want to take any more time from the conversation, but I had to say what I had to say, and I'm very glad I had that chance. So I'm very honored and privileged to introduce Sandra today. And I'm also, I have a dual privilege. I have also first encountered John Philip Santos on the page first. And my sister and I have been fans of his work since we first read his memoir, Places Left Unfinished, at the time of creation. In fact, she will be quite jealous when I tell her that I've had the opportunity of introducing him this afternoon. Macondo Workshop provided me an opportunity to meet this author in San Antonio a few years ago and to find out that he is every bit as large-spirited, generous, and insightful as his writing and professional accomplishments suggest, if not more so. John Philip Santos is a widely published author and media producer who has produced documentaries and news programs in 16 countries for CBS and PBS. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the San Antonio Express News, Texas Monthly, and numerous other newspapers, magazines, and journals in the United States, Mexico, and Europe. He was the first Latino to be elected as a Rhodes Scholar and holds degrees in English Literature and Language from Oxford University and Philosophy and Literature from the University of Notre Dame. Uh, Santos' memoir, Places Left Unfinished at the Creation of Time, was a finalist for the National Book Award in 1999 and the inaugural selection of the One Book, One San Antonio Project in 2006. His first book of poems, Songs Older Than Any Known Singer, was published in 2007 by Wings Press, and, it, and the sequel to his memoir, The Farthest Home is an Empire of Fire, was published by Viking Penguin in April of 2010. Um, 
Please join me in welcoming our distinguished speakers today. Thank you, Lorraine. Um, initially, when we conceived this conversation, we, uh, well, Sandra and I discussed a number of topics uh, that, that might um, be stimulating to information or commentary that's not ordinarily publicly known, and that was our, kind of our, our attempt in, in constructing these topics. And um, as such, we've created a list, and we'll just sort of run through and, if, and, and stimulate some discussion along those lines. And I'm hoping we'll have time at the end so that you can chime in with your particular questions or concerns or comments to the authors. Um, the first thing that we talked about was community, social responsibility, and activism in the writing life. And I'm just curious about some of your reflections on those subjects. What is the sense of responsibility that, that you feel, or what, is the, what does the writing life entail insofar as social responsibility goes? Well, I think um, on the occasion of the fact that we have the Tennessee Williams commemorative bottle of wine with us, we need to begin with a toast. <laughs> because uh, Tennessee Williams always began his, his talks and his readings with a, a public toast. And I remember he came to Notre Dame in, in 1977, and he began with a particular toast. He said, uh, to our mother, to our lady. So I want to make a toast to all our mothers, Cuatlique, Tonancin, our spiritual mother, Sandra, Lupita. So to our mothers, salute. Uh, you know, um, the social dimension of writing, the, the activist dimension, is integral, I think, to both of our practices, um, perhaps in different ways. Um, you know, I, I see writing principally as the evidence of things experienced, undertaken, witnessed, revealed, um, contradicted, and... Um, and out of those experiences, um, social conscience emerges, and, um, and your writing weaves uh, together all of the, the books you've read, all of the authors you emulate, all of the voices you've heard growing up from your family, and you put that down on the page, and um, unless you're writing manifestos or you're writing political tracts, um, you expect that perhaps that work can then, maybe on a molecular level, begin to uh, affect the way that people experience the world themselves. So my orientation about this isn't um, directly in the line of uh, political action. It's really more about how work can affect conscience, how work can in subtle ways, move uh, people's magnetic polarities in the world and maybe move them more towards uh, understanding uh, commonality of the experiences of the poor, of the marginalized, of the oppressed and excluded, and, uh, and that that can lead to a politics. So, you know, I've found that, that generally when that, that, um, that urge to write comes on, you want to, um, in a sense, be of clear spirit about it and, um, and let those processes take place. Um, so it's perhaps for me a little bit more distantiated because um, 
I try to see things more in a kind of a millennial context. So um, the politics of the now um, are a context, a part of that context, but, but not the totality. So how do you move readers into a vision of our time that is set in millennial contexts? Um, that's been my orientation. Um, I feel a lot of guilt that I have such a blessed life and my brother doesn't or my mother didn't. The people I love are still in the burning house, but I escaped. And uh, I feel like uh, I know who's in that burning house. And I, I don't know how it is that I'm sitting here with all of you who came out to hear us. I feel so lucky every day. I'm astonished and filled with gratitude when I know that my brother is never going to have this opportunity to have one person listen to him. And you can extend that to community, uh, our cousins who are still on food stamps, or, or our friends who are stuck uh, uh, drinking, uh, people that are numbed uh, with the blows of life. All of us here are writers, and we have power. We're able to uh, create an alchemy of that negative energy that kills and is killing those we love. And we can survive because we know how to translate that energy into light. But how do we do that for other people? And you know, how can we not do that rather for other people? That's how I feel. I feel this absolute privilege and, and astonishment that my life has taken me to this marvelous route. You know, I was that kid in, that never spoke in class. And I'm aware of that when I go into the classroom. And you see the ones that can't even look you in the eye. They can never raise their, their hands. So I feel guilty. And um, my mother could never have the time to do the kind of work we do sitting with our problems. You know, she would say, you know, I would tell her, oh, I'm depressed. She goes, depressed? I had seven kids. I'm not depressed. <laughs> but she didn't realize that she was angry as hell. And she, you know, she would die angry as hell. She would never see what she did. She could only see what she didn't reach. Whereas those of us, you know, we spend our time like a 20-year sitting meditation, a 30-year, 40, 50, however many years we're granted life to sit in our monastic, you know, doing our, our sitting meditation in our monastery, transferring that darkness that numbs other people, that knocks them in their back, uh, that just uh, silences them completely, and we're able to translate it into loose. You know, that's what we do. We all work with light. All of us are healers, and we're survivors. But I don't know how you escape from that burning house and don't hang around and try to run back in and get the ones that are still in there. And that's what I'm trying to do when I write. I, I hope that I'm saving other people. And there are some people that don't want to come out of the house, and there's nothing you can do. That's the saddest part. But uh, that's, that's why I do it. And I think that leads in, into another topic quite um, gracefully. And th this is a, a question that Dorothy Allison is, um, uh, we have to thank her for this question. And that is, what are you afraid of? What, what do you fear? What are some of the things that really scare you? And it sounds like those are the things that are driving you toward activism. But can you expand on that too? You know, uh, I remember the first time I got interviewed at the Lannan Foundation, you get to pick who interviews you, and I, I always wanted to meet Dorothy Allison, and uh, 
she had a horrible back condition. She came all the way from San Francisco, and it, it really uh, pained her, literally, to get in a car, to get to the airport, get on a plane. And she was there, because she wanted to meet me and interview me. And she astonished me with that question. So it's on the Lannan tape of this interview with uh, Dorothy and me. And she asked, what was I afraid of? That was a long time ago. And what, used to fear, what, what I used to be afraid of is not the same thing I'm afraid of now. I think we, we probably change every day that list of things we're afraid of. You know, uh, I was afraid then of, of uh, childbirth and of having children because I, I, one, I, I didn't want to have a child and worry how I was going to raise a child alone. Children stayed. Men came and went in my life, and I knew that I wasn't going to be able to have help. So uh, I didn't want to have a child, and I didn't uh, want to go through what I thought was the um, roller coaster of giving birth. You know, like you think, that looks like a good ride. I'll get on that. Then you get on. I want to get off. You have to go to the end, and off you go, you know? Well, it's like that. There's no going back once you get on that roller coaster. So I was terrified uh, the way draft dodgers may be terrified of battle. I was terrified of childbirth. But, you know, now that I've gone through menopause and I don't have that fear anymore, <laughs> you know, I have other fears that have popped up, you know? And I think now that I'm older and that I'm by myself, I. I worry about like getting sick and being by yourself and not being able to make a living. Like what if I got like a Alzheimer's? You know, I make my living from memory. So what would I do then? And I, I worry about like our healthcare system and how do we exist as writers when we're single? How do we reinvent ourselves after 55 when we become invisible as women? So that's scary for me. That's one of the things that scares me. And the other thing is, you know, living alone, I live with six dogs, and when they bring home the headless squirrel or the headless rat, you know, I'm terrified. <laughs> uh, you know, fearlessness has been a part of my um, writing discipline, in a sense, and we were talking yesterday at the reading about um, travel and being in situations where fearlessness was an important thing to uh, keep in your pocket as a way of getting through unexpected circumstances like coup d'etats or revolutions in Chiapas or uh, martial law in Peru. And uh, so, the, well, you know, cultivating a kind of fearlessness about the way that you move in the world as a writer, uh, opening yourself up to experiences. You know, when you hear that there is a, an upheaval, a revolution taking place in San Cristobal de las Casas, and you're in Tuxla Gutierrez, and the sun is going down, and you hear various reports that the army is attacking the city, or the Zapatistas are attacking civilians, and you decide to drive in anyway, you know, into the, uh, into the night. And, um, and that was a big part of a good deal of the last 30 years for me. And... Um, recently traveling on the Texas-Mexico border after a long time where it was free passage to move back and forth across the border and to move anywhere in Mexico as a, as a writer, as a seeker, as a witness to everything that was going on, suddenly to encounter this extraordinary upheaval of violence that's taking place in our homelands, uh, 
my family's been in that region since the 1620s. And, um, and suddenly it became a concern. I have a daughter now nine months old. Um, and that fearlessness that has always been sort of uh, ample um, was suddenly checked. And, um, and I had to really think about whether it made sense to, to go across the border just to get a plate of roasted carrito, you know. Uh, so um, the, um, the protection of fearlessness, the fear of losing that, uh, for me has always been a kind of delicate balance. And, um, you know, that remains a big part of how I seek uh, stories in the world, is to put myself into places where um, things are taking place. We're watching it happen um, hour by hour now in, in Egypt. And uh, you see journalists hunkering down on their Skype cameras uh, in their hotel rooms as, um, as the world is on fire outside. Um, so that is a measure for me of, of where you um, uh, are willing to go in terms of that daring about witnessing stories taking place and bringing them back to your desk, writing them, believing your words, and then putting them out into the public um, yeah, so the fear of fearless, of losing fearlessness um, is always present with me. Because I'm really a chicken. In many of those cases, in many of these cases with these uh, somewhat dangerous yeah. circumstances, it was usually women who were uh, uh, telling me to go forward into it. They were, you know, compa- traveling companions. So they wanted to go into Belfast, you know, when Belfast was on fire. Or they wanted to go into Khartoum when a revolution had just taken place or to yeah. drive into Chiapas. So... I've always depended on the fearlessness of women you to know, get me through. You know, you think you're so brave. And then, like, when I, I go back a lot to Sarajevo, where I used to live. And I knew Sarajevo before the war, but uh, especially I've, I've been making the trips afterwards. And you think you're so brave when your friends tell you the stories. And then they say, oh, come on, we want you to see our apartment where, you know, where we got uh, uh, under siege. And uh, they'll say, but be careful, there are landmines here. <laughs> and I paused, and then I said, I'll meet you in the car. You know, so you're not that brave when you yeah. really have to make those little choices. It makes a big difference if it's your fight. And, um, and this is, a, I think, a, a major issue now for Tejano writers, for, for writers along the border. Um, this is our fight. Uh, what's taking place in Mexico is, is historic. In many ways, it's uh, the continuation of the Mexican Revolution we've been in the midst of these observances of the centennial of the Mexican Revolution, in fact, the revolution continues. And now it's really at our doorstep again. And um, we have to really resolve where we um, are going to align ourselves with all of these movidas that are taking place just 90 miles to the south of San Antonio. We both live in San Antonio, Texas. Mm -hmm. Well, that um, leads conveniently into the next topic, I think, which is uh, uh, about the influence of spirituality and creation as a spiritual act. And, and I think I'm getting from, from both of what you're, what you're saying, uh, that sense of yourself being part of something larger than yourselves. Um, so I guess it's, uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about inspiration, spirituality, channeling the creative force, and being part of something larger than yourself that helps you mitigate fears, very tangible, very realistic fears. Udalupista. Oh, you know, it's really hard for me to talk about uh, teaching or writing. I can't teach writing without talking about the spiritual, because one of the things that I learned is that writing is a spiritual act, 
And the more I can get myself out of the way, the better the writing is. The more humble I can become, the more I pledge my work for other people, the more I do it for love, but love for others. And the more I get my ego and my agenda out of the way, the writing will take me to better places. And that's very simple, two things, you know, humility and uh, uh, fearlessness. You have to ask for those two things. That's important to put it out there, even if you're uh, having great doubts about the spiritual world. You know, we all believe that in higher self, and you can just say, okay, this is what I need to do. I need to get myself out of the way by being humble, getting my agenda out of the way, and just opening myself to wherever the peace is going to take me. I think it's a spiritual act. I always invoke all the help I can get. You know, if you've got uh, connections in higher places, why not use them? You know, so uh, I always, uh, to get myself in a quiet place, I start my meditation with my father because his love is really present. He's very present in my life uh, in the way that I was so astonished uh, after his death. I, you know, I didn't know, and maybe everybody doesn't know this, maybe everybody knows it, but I didn't know that when someone dies that you continue to receive their love. It was such a mind-boggling uh, news that I thought they should put it on CNN on the little banner that like kind of flashes and I thought well why didn't they tell me but someone told me that not everybody knows this I, I think all artists know this or I'm presuming too much but it's just a visceral thing I, I know that I, my father's love still comes to me because I feel it the same way that when you see a beloved across the room and you go hey you know and you feel this energy from that person I still feel it with my father and if I'd known that, I wouldn't have cried so much when he was ill. So I, I know that there's something. I don't know what's there on, on the other side of our death, but there's something that, for lack of a better word, I will call spirit. And I just know that it's part of the process of writing for me to uh, channel, get out of the way, you know, act almost like a medium, or I like to think like a flute that this music travels through you, but you clog it up with your ego, you clog it up with fear, you clog it up with any negative energy. But as long as you're doing something for someone else, you forget to be frightened, and you forget about yourself, and you just are uh, clear to get this light that comes through you, that comes through you, that comes through you. It just takes an awful lot of time to get to that state, but it's not impossible. Well, spirituality has you know, kind of been a a place of dual meanings for me. Um, you know, I, I was an undergrad at, at Notre Dame, as you mentioned. So four years at Notre Dame sort of uh, guaranteed and, and baby, basically uh, deepened my uh, anti-religiousness in a way that was, <laughs> is almost irreversible. Um, almost guarantees that I will never find my way back into institutional faith of any, any stripe. But on the other hand, um, Early in my life, early on as a writer, as a young poet, along with uh, poet Naomi Shahab Nye in San Antonio, one evening we went and, and met uh, Swami Sachidananda, one of, the great, uh, one of the great high souls of our time, passed not too long ago. And so he, uh, in a sense, kind of awakened me to this other path of spirituality, something that was inward, something that was connected to the world. Uh, I remember in this darshan he gave, a woman was uh, asking questions at one point. She'd asked lots of really annoying questions to him, and he was very uh, tolerant with her. And then she finally asked, well, is it true, uh, Guruji, that um, 
that the world is created and destroyed every minute. And she, he, he replied to her very quickly. He said, well, you're still here, aren't you? And, uh, <laughs> but this guy really knows something. Uh, and, um, you know, ironically, my work in television, my work at CBS News, uh, was reporting uh, religion and, and spirituality in the sense of faith movements. So a lot of reports on uh, liberation theology and resurgent Islam and new religious movements. And, and that experience took me around the world and gave me witness to the incredible power of belief to reshape communities um, from the poorest, the most uh, dejected communities in rural areas of Nicaragua or Peru to urban places like Sao Paulo and, and Chicago and LA. And so I saw there this other element of a kind of a universal human story that connected back to growing up Chicano in South Texas, remembering the experiences of our family coming out of Mexico, the experiences of poverty and dislocation, uh, refugee status, and um, all of that giving us a kind of universal human spirit. Um, so that became a way for me to think about memoir, you know, a way of thinking about memoir, not as an account of myself, an autobiographical uh, account, but using memoir as a way to, to try to reconstruct our connection to this, this universal story and to this ancestral journey um, that connected us in part, in the case of my families, to, to Mexico, the indigenous world, to Spain, to uh, the Middle East, Africa. Um, ultimately, when you begin uh, that kind of writing, you're always going to be taken back to these, these primal sources of our humanity and our ethnic distinctions, our national identities, our racial and cultural um, identities begin to wash away like, uh, you know, very thin uh, paint, you know, kind of very thin uh, tincture. And, and you start getting down into this other dimension of our, our uh, humanity. And so for me, memoir has, has been the means by which I connect to this spiritual realm. Um, and the influences in that, in that lineage are very diverse. You know, Sir Thomas Brown and Thomas Traherne in the 17th century and Edmund Spencer and Borges and William Blake. And those are kind of like my spiritual mentors. Um, so they're literary spiritual mentors. Um, as I said earlier, um, that experience at Notre Dame, I think, guarantees that that particular path, uh, unless something terrible happens, like a, you know, kind of a, one of those road to Damascus stories where you get stricken off your mule by a lightning bolt, um, um, I won't find my way back to the church. Well, I have to say something there. Uh, my family is from the parish of the, uh, the real site where the Virgen de Guadalupe or the alleged site of the Virgen de Guadalupe appeared to Juan Diego in the neighborhood called Tepeyac in Mexico City. And I grew up taking that for granted. Uh, I, but now I'm a Guadalupanista or Budalupista, uh, you know, and I never would have dreamed that. So life is very astonishing. Be very careful. Uh, you know, my mother was not a Catholic by any means, and my father was a man and Mexican, which means he never had to go to church. You know? uh, but we grew up, you know, a few blocks from the little derby of the hill where the Virgen appeared, and we were always hanging around there as children playing, waiting for my grandmother or waiting for my grandfather who worked next door. 
And uh, you know, I, I, I think uh, I like what Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, the Zen Buddhist monk, has to say about like you have to embrace your roots, whatever those roots are, uh, and go back. Uh, when you become a Buddhist, you must take those parts that are part of your culture. So, if you're Mexican, you know you gotta recognize the Virgen de Guadalupe as a powerful uh, community organizer, you know? <laughs> you just have to recognize that. So, you know, I just see her as an image that allowed me to open the door. But I really think God isn't a person or a woman or a man or any religion. I really think that everybody doubts the existence of God, but nobody doubts the existence of love. And love, to me, is that energy. And it just comes to us poured in different bottles so we could open or close the door. You know, I was just down in, in Dafe a few weeks ago, and um, there at the Bayak, and uh, after a couple of days of moving around other parts of the city in Templo Mayor and uh, Tlatelolco, some of the old ceremonial centers, the Mexica, the places where um, people came to, to worship Huitzilopochtli uh, and Tlaloc and Quetzalcoatl and... Um, those now are in ruins um, that are be being extraordinarily well excavated and all kinds of new discoveries taking place. But at, at uh, Tepeyac, there at the shrine of, of Guadalupe, um, you see alive today this ancient uh, ritual of pilgrimage, um, the, the persistence and the continuity of uh, pilgrimage in our ancestral past um, is present there in a living way. Um, so that part of the story for me is tremendously moving, um, whether it's in Tepeyac or in Mecca or in Jerusalem uh, or in the, the shrine to uh, um, Don Fidencio, Nino Fidencio in, in northern Mexico. Um, that part of our tradition, I think, does connect us to, to these deeply human roots. Um, uh, but when it's layered on with uh, the apparatus of the, the ecclesial institution of the church um, with uh, Pope Vader, uh, the, current, uh, <laughs> the current pontiff of the church, um, then it becomes a deeply darkening uh, experience for me. Yes. Uh, well, it's, it, it's come up a few times, your connection, not only through Makondo, but through um, your current place and your, uh, the current space that you inhabit and the subject of love has come up um, and just thinking about place where you live now San Antonio and that I'm sure love-hate relationship that people often have with the places that they inhabit I was just curious if you would like to speak to what is that like to share that particular geographic and cultural milieu San Antonio, love-hate place? Well, I, I think that John Philip has more love and I probably have more hate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I only lived there 25 years, whereas they've been there how many generations? Yeah, well, you know, if you want to count in years, it gets very lengthy, but, you know, a couple of centuries, let's yes, say. Yes, right. You get a little bit um, of a jump on me. But, you know, I, I have to say, you know, San Antonio drives me crazy. And the reason why I named Macondo, Macondo, was because uh, you know, and when you, if you read 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, it's a town that keeps inventing ice 
because they're so isolated that the gypsies come and bring ice, and they go, oh, my God, ice. And then someone comes and tells them the world is round. Oh, no, the world is round. That's, that's San Antonio. So I used to wait for like, I read about uh, uh, movies and I read about plays and I know that they're going to come to San Antonio, maybe never. So I just read about them. And uh, people say, have you seen this film? And I said, when's that coming to Macondo? So I was disgusted and angry for a long time. And finally one day, you know, I just said, you know, I got to just make my reality. And no matter where I go, even if I lived in Paris or Santa Fe or New York, I would still have the same complaints that it isn't the community I want. So, you know, you have to make your community better if it isn't a good fit. So I couldn't sit around and wait for the universities to invite my friends because they were never going to do it. So I decided to ask them myself. I asked my friends like, John Philip, will you help me? Uh, my workshop's getting too big. I'm going to split it into two and clone it. Will you teach one for, you know, and he would do it. And I was the only one that was earning from my writing, but out of the generosity of friends, they helped the workshop to grow. The members themselves, I would say, you've got $100? Have you got $100? Have you got $100? I need to raise $800 so that we can fly uh, so-and-so from Seattle. And everybody would just pitch in. We didn't have any. Uh, not for profit. We just did it because we had ganas, you know, desire. And, and that's how we did things. So that was a wonderful thing. San Antonio has its great things in that it's a small enough town that it was affordable to put on a, a one-week workshop like Macondo. So I tell people it's like organizing a seven-day wedding. And we had the support system there. You know, the people in Our Lady of the Lake at Trinity, at uh, UT, they were happy to loan us the classroom space. And so we've been doing it for uh, you know, t- uh, 10 years without any money, except the money out of our own generosity and goodwill. The members themselves, we, you know, we, we're operating the way organizations operate that have a university helping them out. And we just do it with, you know, troche moche, you know, just do it any old way. And the way we make it work is simply we just have the desire. We have volunteers. And that takes a lot of work. I have to mention, you know, for all the controversy this may say, that we're getting support from a corporation this year. I think this corporation said, I must do something to fix my image. And that's Amazon.com. So if they're willing to change their image by helping organizations like us, I want to say bravo, bravo. And so we're getting help. We're finally getting those grants. But, you know, it's it's a lot of work to do the work that we've been doing on a volunteer basis and to do it for 15 years. And I forgot what the question was. We were talking about San Antonio. Yes. uh, Which was a great, San Antonio was a great place to grow up as a writer. you know, I had the great fortune early on to meet uh, Naomi Shihab Nye. Yeah. And um, so it was a place where uh, a large number of poets, Rosemary Katakolos and... Yes, but uh, you're from San Antonio. I am from San Antonio, so Antonio yes. San Antonio so we were rooted there. embrace you. To me, they sit there and say, well, who is she and why did she take my job? Yeah. Well, that's, you know, <laughs> when Sandra came to town in 1984, um, she became... Um, a kind of uh, hearth for other writers. So that small community of long uh, uh, established writers in San Antonio connected to the music scene in Austin, folks like Towns Van Zandt and Alejandro Escovedo and 
Flaco Jimenez in San Antonio and Esteban Jordan and many others. Out of that kind of um, foment in, in San Antonio that was always present, um, I have to say Sandra's presence uh, really catalyzed something new. Um, 